The human relationship with money is complicated to say the least. There is very little that can be done without it these days, and yet it gets a bad rap at times, often being associated with crime, corruption and greed. Indeed, many destructive things have been done in the pursuit of monetary wealth. But money has also been used to improve people's lives and create positive change. Ultimately, money is no more than a tool, its impact determined simply by the intentions of those who use it. The issues surrounding money seem to stem from its uneven distribution and misuse, its overall role in creating many of the problems facing us today, problems such as climate change and social inequality. As global awareness of these issues continues to spread, we're seeing increased concern about the way in which money is handled and the effects of its use. Environmental and social considerations now play a greater role in investment decisions, and producers seem to be facing more pressure from consumers and regulators in regards to the sustainability of their business practices. Sustainable finance has become an important concept in a world struggling to correct the mistakes of the past. We thought it might be interesting to look at some of the ways in which human attitudes may have changed over the past few years. So we reached out to Colin Bogle, a social justice coordinator at the University of Denver, who actually ended up showing us that sustainable finance can perhaps function in more ways than we probably realize. Sometimes it means deliberately embracing a slower pace and just accepting that you don't need to have everything done as quickly as you want it to be done. Not everything needs to be instant. We also wanted to see how sustainable finance functions in a more conventional sense towards supporting Caribbean energy reform. So we got in contact with Christopher Strand, a sustainable energy specialist at the Caribbean Development Bank. Usually our, our clientele is you know, state-owned enterprises or institutions, governments themselves, utilities, and, and working also with the private sector where possible towards sustainable projects. So let's explore the concept of sustainable finance and see what it means for the Caribbean region in this episode of Caesar Voices. Trends in the financial sector are often driven by the changing demands of the general public. So we decided to start by exploring some of the thought processes underpinning this push towards sustainable finance. To get some help doing so, we got in touch with Colin Bogle, an American-born, Caribbean-raised social justice coordinator at the University of Denver. Much of Colin's work centers around sustainable development. And when one speaks to him, it's easy to see where his inspiration comes from. When it comes to things like climate change and so on, I don't really have to have an opinion because it's already happening. I've already seen it taking place. You know, I'm from Hellshire. I used to go to Hellshire a lot as a child. And now when I go to Hellshire, um, the beach isn't there anymore. So I have to have some kind of thought on sustainability because it's just happening already. And I've spoken to my grandmother. She's told me things like there used to be more birds when she was a child. Simple things like that. It's kind of difficult to not have an opinion on it unless you're deliberately cutting yourself off from it. Climate change is likely to affect us all. 
But some people are at a particular disadvantage thanks to socioeconomic inequality. I had a sheltered background, so I didn't really see it in the same way other people saw it. But over time, I kind of started going out of my bubble. I was in cadets back in Jamaica, and a lot of people in cadets were in the PATH program. So I would just talk to them or even just like notice them and notice what they were going through. I went to UE and lots of people there were impoverished. And at UE, I learned about how Jamaica compared to other countries is impoverished. And it's not necessarily due to anything that we did or didn't do, just the way the global economic system is set up. You know, colonialism, slavery, all of those things, neocolonialism. And I just kind of arrived at those conclusions just from observation. All school really did and continues to do for me is just give me the theoretical backing to things I've seen my whole life. So it just helps it make sense to me. In a media-driven era defined by millennials, zillennials, and boomers, it's easy to get caught up in the idea that only the youngest among us can see and care about the issues facing society. But as Colin points out, it's a little more complicated than that. I think every generation has gone through things like this, and it's just a matter of how long they sustain it for. A lot of people from the 60s and 70s and 80s were really counterculture, and then all we got out of that was whole foods. So it it remains to be seen how long this goes. I think with a lot of people now, they can't ignore it. They had a, a major terrorist attack when they were like children, followed by a recession where their parents lost their house. Now, when they're just beginning to start having kids, they have a pandemic and they're seeing how much money was spent on that unwinnable war that could have been spent helping them. So it's kind of difficult to ignore it, but it can also be something where people just see it so much that they don't want to do anything about it. They just kind of live their lives and wait for it to go away or just live their lives in general. And I understand that. I have struggled a lot with, am I doing enough? Is there more that I could do? You know, I have to buy stuff from Amazon despite my best desires not to. And ultimately, I'm kind of caught up in the same system everyone else is caught up in. I try to just do what I can, but that's it. I just think we all just have to do what we can, but it's easier for some than others. And some people just don't want to, and I understand that. Many of us experience a kind of cognitive dissonance when considering the wider problems of the modern world. It can sometimes feel as though addressing these issues in a meaningful way requires a kind of drastic systematic change that might disrupt our efforts to raise families and create meaningful, stable lives. But some people are starting to recognize that effecting positive change doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing affair. I think a lot of it isn't necessarily about shifting, like putting an end to buying and selling things under capitalism, but just being more wary about where you put your money. I know when it comes to lots of the new things people are into, jewelry, head wraps, hair care, and so on, there are opportunities to buy that from small businesses, from businesses where any profit that goes is just helping the people keep a roof over their head and isn't going towards, you know, making even more money for an incredibly rich man. And just the concept of voting, not only, you know, in the ballot, but also with their money. 
So when you buy things from Amazon, are you buying an Amazon original or are you buying something that a small black business is selling through Amazon? There are ways to just look at it like that. I've seen Native American people who are selling jewelry and they're saying that this is a way of beading that their culture almost lost, that they're trying to revive. And they tell you that if you buy five of them from us, each one takes a week. So you have five weeks before you get it and they'll all be different because we made them all by hand. Sometimes it means deliberately embracing a slower pace and just accepting that you don't need to have everything done as quickly as you want it to be done. Not everything needs to be instant. Even with Amazon, do you really need next day shipping all the time or can you wait a week? Money is indeed power. But that doesn't always translate to titans of industry making sweeping changes to the global landscape. The rest of us can also use our spending power to raise our voices and make an impact towards a sustainable future. Of course, there's also things like just getting to know your neighbors, helping out the people in your community more. I see a lot of people nowadays, if people are dealing with poverty and so on, they'll share like, what is it called? Their GoFundMe or their PayPal and people will push money into that. With the Afghan refugee crisis, people were pushing money into that. We're after the Haitian, elect, uh, Haitian um, assassination of the president or after the earthquake, people were pushing money into that. And that's just how it is. People push money into things and it doesn't have to be a lot, but it can have an effect. It can have a huge effect. Platforms such as GoFundMe and PayPal have made it much easier for those without the spending power of billionaires and large corporations to invest directly towards causes in need of support. This has powerful implications for small island developing states in the Caribbean, like Jamaica, for instance. People used to agonize a lot about like brain drain, people leaving the country and not coming back. And I think what's happening a lot is a lot of people, in as much as they leave the country, remain engaged. And it's not just like what I'm doing. There are actual organizations designed to facilitating interactions with Jamaicans in France, Jamaicans in Japan, queer Jamaicans in New York, queer Jamaicans in Miami, second generation Jamaicans. And I think the future is a lot more of those kinds of interactions of people who weren't even necessarily born in Jamaica, but were raised Jamaican, who see things here and want to contribute. I always think to myself, if someone were to develop a reliable mechanism of pulling funding from gener- from wealthy Jamaicans overseas to distribute among the Jamaican population, which kind of takes place on an informal level with all these GoFundMe accounts and so on, that is where I think the future is heading, that kind of just... I guess, interaction between the diaspora and Jamaicans overseas and the blurring of the line between diaspora and Jamaica. By definition, sustainable finance is meant to favor positive social and environmental outcomes within its area of effect. Strictly speaking, this applies to investment decisions made within the financial sector. But crowdfunding and remittance platforms, if used correctly, might hold the key to facilitating this process on an informal basis. And this might open up new channels of well-needed funding that might go a long way towards tackling certain issues faced by Caribbean SIDS. 
which often have to depend on slow-moving aid from NGOs and other foreign entities. Of course, not all our problems can be solved in this way. Larger, more complex pursuits such as energy sector reform require a more regulated, systematic approach. And this is where institutions such as the Caribbean Development Bank come into play. The goal of the bank, like many development institutions, is to support these countries with development through financing, not just for investment, but also through technical assistance, which would be largely grant financing for capacity strengthening, expertise, training, as well as sustainable infrastructure. That's Christopher Strawn. He works at the Caribbean Development Bank as a sustainable energy specialist. So my role is within what we call the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Unit, which is a, a small unit within the bank focusing on exactly that. So it's uh, really focusing on um, opportunity identification, working with governments, utilities and other actors within the region towards supporting the energy transition from what is largely you know, fossil fuel driven towards a clean and, and more efficient energy sector. We sat down with Chris to better understand the CDB's increasing role in the region's sustainability efforts. But his own story actually presents a great example of how Caribbean professionals from different fields are stepping in to do more themselves. So I, I started my career as a process engineer in Trinidad, actually, in oil and gas, as many of, of the professionals in, in this space have done, actually. As I've learned, it was a kind of a guilty secret of mine when I was you know, in certain forums and circles and realized after speaking to quite a few people, they, they started on that side, the dark side of energy, so to speak, and made the transition, turned a green leaf. So that's where I started. After that, I had the opportunity to come back to my homeland of Barbados with a, an energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy type, clean tech startup company out of Germany who were setting up a regional office here. So I worked with them, um, kind of developing a market for them and, and trying to deploy their technology for about four and a half years. But the, I think they significantly underestimated the challenges of breaking into a, the market in the region and the, the difficulty of doing business and the regulatory and, and legal challenges around um, this sector. So they, they pulled out of the region. Uh, luckily, uh, there was an opportunity then to join the Caribbean Development Bank as part of their Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Unit. Um, and I, I really saw that as a great way to contribute to the solving of a lot of these challenges that I would have faced on the development side. So it was really quite a fortuitous opportunity and so far so good. The CDB has over 28 member countries, but not all of them borrow money from the bank. Here's how it all works. So we have borrowing members and non-borrowing members. So the non-borrowing members are largely developed countries that are partnering with us as an institution to support the development of our Caribbean countries, our borrowing members, right? Right. Usually our, our clientele is, you know, state-owned enterprises or institutions, governments themselves, utilities, and, and working also with the private sector where possible towards sustainable projects, really focusing on, you know, the macro benefits of the development, focusing on environmental and social impacts, ensuring that whatever it is that the, the funding is used for is positively impacting the country towards, you know, sustainable outcomes as, as defined by the national determined targets for climate change and carbon emissions and those type of things. The bank largely engages its borrowing members at the national level, but the important role of the private sector is well understood. 
private entities certainly can approach banks separately. The challenges on that front is the size of the project. We have, you know, the, the term that's used is transaction costs. So it would likely be better for, you know, aggregated groups of projects or, or very large corporate entities. We would probably prefer to work with private sector through other partners, such as local development banks. So we would support either governments, um, local financial institutions, um, or sub-regional type institutions to then engage directly with private sector actors. Our focus and strategy around private sector is changing. The risk profile of dealing with private sector is different than dealing with public sector. So that's something that, that has to be reassessed. Certainly when it comes to sustainable development, especially in the renewable energy or sustainable energy sector, we recognize that private sector has to play a significant role, either through project development, project finance, um, technology enhancement, expertise, and capacity strengthening, those type of things. So usually our engagement would be through through a government, as you said. And then when we were working with private partners, it would probably be either through a public-private partnership, which would have been competitively advertised, or some type of project development where, again, we, we really recommend going through a competitive procurement process. Sustainable finance has been the business of the CDB since its establishment over 50 years ago. But the nature of its work, particularly in the energy sector, has evolved over the years, especially in recent times. For context, you know, CDB has always been in, in energy, in the energy sector, and supported governments and countries with their energy sector development and needs, you know, when it comes to generation, transmission, distribution, those type of things. As it pertains to renewable energy, energy efficiency, or, or what we refer to as sustainable energy, uh, we've, we've developed a focus on that only very recently. So 2015 was when we launched the Renewable Energy Energy Efficiency Unit alongside the Energy Sector Policy and Strategy, which was um, born out of the recognition that there needed to be a targeted focus thrust towards this transition uh, for all the reasons we know, you know, the energy security issues, the, the high foreign exchange burden, cost of fuel imports, the climate mitigation targets, all of the things that we know we need renewable energy and energy efficiency. The transition is well underway. It's, it's not moving as fast as it needs to. Time is certainly of the essence where energy reform is concerned, especially in light of the recent IPCC report. But unfortunately, it's not an easy road for Caribbean SIDS. There's been several macroeconomic challenges within the member countries. There's the challenge around debt burdens. There's a challenge around the regulatory framework, the legal framework, and the internal capacity of governments to really make the reform necessary for these things to move at pace. There's ways that you can do this very quickly, but the implications long-term may be not exactly what you want. So you can incentivize you know, solar PV uptake by having a very high cost or, or feed-in tariff to the grid, but then you can potentially undermine the objective in the long-term, which is ensuring that you have the lowest um, tariff for consumers or the, the lowest en energy costs. And we know there's reasons why you might pay more for renewable energy, but at the same time, you don't want to do it in a way where your energy costs then increase over the long haul. So it has to be done carefully, it has to be done um, in a very strategic and informed way. Uh, I think that's why there's there's a bit of lag in the real uptake and there's still far less capacity installed than we would have liked. That is changing, but changing a bit too slow. So things aren't moving as quickly as we'd like, but there is a bit of a sunnier side to the transition situation. 
What we have seen, though, is that the likes of solar PV in many jurisdictions, what would have started needing development financing or needing some grants um, to get going or needed high feed-in tariff to get going has now transitioned to the point where, you know, that's now commercial. You're now seeing, you know, a person going to the bank, a standard commercial bank, taking out a loan. Um, in some areas, in some banks, they will take the actual system as collateral or you have to put up some, some other form of security. And then you can just go as a normal individual or company, what have you, to purchase a BV system. That wasn't the case five years ago. So that's where we're seeing the, the shift of large-scale uptake um, happening. And you start looking forward at what you know what's next. So solar PV, the work has been done. People are aware of it. People being consumers, people being governments, policymakers, financiers in the commercial sector, that's now well on its way to becoming standard par for the course that anyone can pick up and do it. Let's focus on the next potential element within the transition that would need um, a sustained focus on, for example, you know, battery energy storage systems, electric mobility, the likes of geothermal energy is still something we're focused on significantly so. And then even looking then at offshore ocean energy, such as wave, you have tidal, you have offshore wind, either fixed or floating. And then you have what you call ocean thermal energy conversion, which uses the difference in seawater temperature to generate energy. With solar PV entering the mainstream, the CDB is able to place more focus on other areas such as the ones Chris just mentioned. But the major disruptions in the energy sector caused by recent events such as the COVID-19 pandemic have put the overall objective of the transition process into sharp focus. Resilience in all forms has to feature as the key strategic objective for the region. Uh, we've adjusted our strategy accordingly. and I mean, it's not specifically around private sector engagement, but just across the board. We recognize that the institutions themselves can't do it all. Uh, we have an opportunity right now to, what they say, rebuild better. And I think sustainable financing from the likes of the multilateral development banks, from philanthropic donors, from NGOs, from governments, have to be leveraged to mobilize private financing because the upfront cost of the transition is quite high. Um, and we're going to need a, a significant thrust to push it in the direction we want towards more sustainable outcomes. That being said, the business case is also very strong. You know, when we look at the savings around energy efficiency or the avoided fuel costs for the region, um, and then when you couple that with building resilience, ensuring that you reduce the you know total replacement cost, for example, there's strong business cases for it. it you just need a significant thrust and, and pool of capital up front to change the momentum to to disrupt the business as usual scenario towards the direction we want to go, and just have a a more holistic long term type view versus the short term kind of quick returns view that private sector business is typically associated with. Sustainable development is an expensive affair, but it's well worth the investment when you consider the long-term returns. Caribbean countries continue to face major challenges on the road to sustainability, but if we can work together, prioritize effectively, and make creative use of the resources at hand, there's a good chance we'll actually reach our development goals in the long run. Anyway, that's all we have for you on this episode of Caesar Voices. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to share their insights with us. We'd also like to thank our funded partner, the Barbados Environmental Conservation Trust, for making this episode possible. The Trust aims to help Barbados reach its national development goals by supporting local initiatives aimed at environmental sustainability. Of course, we definitely want to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Caesar Voices podcast. 
if you like what you've been hearing so far, please feel free to give us a rating wherever you're listening. We'd also like to remind you that you can visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations to lend your financial support. Or join our monthly donor club on Patreon and gain access to exclusive content. Or even be featured in an episode of the Caesar Voices podcast. Just click the links in the description. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, click on our corporate link to learn more. 